And the children are going to be practicing for our Christmas program, which will be next Sunday night. And so make sure you're here next Sunday night for the uh, children's program. We'll have the announcements a little bit later. We'll remind you about that. But they will be participating. They will be singing in our Christmas program next Sunday. So I don't know about you, but whenever children get up on the platform, it's a scary thing, right? They can never do anything wrong, though. They can never do anything wrong. I remember I, I loved Christmas programs, children's programs. And uh, I remember years ago, uh, I mean, I was in the program, so it was a long time ago. We were in the program, and I remember, you know, each kid has like one little part, that's it, just one little line, you know. And you're nervous, and you're terrified. And I remember my good friend, his name was Jimmy, I'll never forget his name, was Jimmy Walker. He's like nine years old or something like that. And he didn't really want to be in the program, but they made him. You know, that was back when you had to, you know, and the parents made him, and everyone made him. Didn't want to do the part. And, uh, and he was terrified anyway and didn't want to get up in front of people, but he had to do the part. And so he, had, uh, he was one of the three wise men. They made him speak for the wise men. And uh, he came and they brought up the gifts and put it on the, you know, it was up on the platform. They put the gifts at little baby Jesus, you know. And he stood there and he says, we are the three wise men from afar. We bring to you gifts of gold Frankenstein and myrrh. <laughs> and the place went crazy. Everyone just laughed so hard. That's all they ever remembered. And, uh, and he didn't even know what he said, you know. His mom thought he did it on purpose, you know. And he was, he th- he's like, no, I promise I didn't know what I was saying. He just looked around and, and the place went crazy. I don't remember anything else about the Christmas program. I just remember that. And so you just never know what's going to happen when you have uh, kids up here. But we want our kids to be involved in serving, amen, and uh, in honoring and glorifying God. So we're in Matthew 5. I'm going to have to keep it short today. Do my best to keep it short. Um, my voice, we'll see how long it will hold up. And uh, some of you are saying, man, God answers prayer, uh, you know. <laughs> um, but... It's wrestling season and being a wrestling coach, you know, when you're all weekend long, you're coaching, you're cheering, uh, you know, sometimes yelling, whatever, you know. Um, so your voice, it really it takes a while for me to get it back to where it needs to be. So uh, Matthew chapter five, beginning in verse number 13. If you would follow along, notice what the scripture says. It says, you're the salt of the earth. This is the Sermon on the Mount, and this is what Jesus said. We'll talk more about it in a moment. But he said this, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and to be trampled underfoot. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we pray you bless your word this morning. We are thankful for all that you have done for us. As we have taken some time aside this morning to remember your sacrifice, to remember all that you have done for us. You gave your body to be broken for us and you shed your blood. And even as we think of this Christmas season, and oftentimes we get so busy with our lives, we get so busy with thinking of Christmas gifts and decorations and meals and and, um, just Uh, the shopping and all the things, may we not forget about the true reason for this season, and that is that it was the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And you came and you were born so that you could die for us, to take our place. And so we thank you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for what you taught us while you were here on this earth. And we're so thankful for this sermon, Lord, this message that you preach to the multitudes. And just the, the, the powerful words that are in it, I pray that we would take them and realize that the message that I'm preaching today is not my message. This is not my sermon. This is your sermon. And we are just looking at what you said and how you want us to live. So I pray that you would bless, Lord, your word in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, this is the most, really probably the most popular sermons ever preached by the greatest preacher ever preached it, Jesus Christ himself. And we've spent a number of weeks on what's called the, the Beatitudes, and we're working our way through these Beatitudes. And we, we've, we've looked at the fact that our attitude is so important. What's going on in the inside is important. And so he spends the first part of the sermon dealing with our heart. He speaks about humility, and he speaks about being, uh, if you will, in poverty of spirit. He talks about meekness, and he talks about being merciful, how you treat other people. He talks about being, as we saw uh, last week, and uh, how to handle persecution. He talks about being a peacemaker. He says a lot of things, but he's dealing with, with what's going on in the inside. He's dealing with the heart. And then I want you to notice he makes some interesting statements. He says in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. And then later he says, we'll talk about it next week, we're to be the light. He says, but you are salt. You are the salt of the earth. And I really want you to understand something. What he's saying is this, is that if you are doing all of these things, and if you have this attitude and this heart about you, if you're doing the things that I've asked you to do previously, leading up to this point, he says, then you will be the salt of the earth. He says, if you're a merciful person, if you're a peacemaker, if you have a spirit of, if you will, of humility, and if you are, and he also says, hey, be righteous, live a righteous life. He says, if you do these things, then you will be the salt of the earth. What does it mean to be the salt of the earth? What is Jesus saying? You are the salt of the earth. Now, I don't know about you, but if someone were just to say casually in our culture, boy, you, you're salt. You'd kind of be like, what are you talking about? You are salt? You know, sometimes when, when someone's in a bad mood, I'll say, I'll say like they're salty. You know, they're just, they're in a bad mood. You know what I'm talking about? Jesus was not saying that he, he was it was not like a derogatory thing. In fact, it was the complete opposite. Jesus was giving them one of the greatest compliments. When he said you are Saul in this culture, that was a, a, a huge compliment. It meant a lot. You say, well, why is that? Well, let's look a little bit about salt in the, the day and age that Jesus lived in in that culture. Some of you may not know this, but the word soldier, do you know what the word soldier literally means? It, it's it's sold there. It literally means this, paid in salt. Do you know that the Roman soldiers, how they were paid was they would be given pounds or amounts of salt. A Roman soldier was called a soldier because it literally meant they were paid in salt. And you say, well, that's not a big deal. No, it's a big deal because salt was one of the most valuable 
assets that they had. Saul was something that was very valuable. In today's terms, it might be similar to saying, hey, I'm going to pay someone in silver or pay them in gold. Because in this society, in this culture, you know, silver, gold, salt were all things that were of great value. And so when Jesus says to these, his followers, and understand this, please understand this, get this. What Jesus is saying is to them, but also not only to them, but what he's saying to me and to you today is this. Is he says, if you are a true follower of Jesus Christ. If you truly live my ways and do the things that I've asked you to do, he says, then you will be of great value to the culture and the society that you are living in. He is saying to us as followers of Christ that if you live and walk in my ways, you will be salt. You will be valuable. Or we could say it like this. You are precious to the culture that you are in. Salt was very valuable. Have you ever heard this? Think about this word, salary. What does that word sound right? Sound like it comes from literally salt. Salary, salt, soldier paid in salt. It was huge. It was valuable. And listen, if you had a lot amount, a lot of salt, then you were rich. You were wealthy, and you could sell it. Salt was used for many different things. It was precious. It was valuable. Okay, here's another one. Have you ever thought about this? My dad used to say, he, you know, he ain't worth his weight in salt. My dad had a painting and roofing business. (laughs) He had a painting and roofing business. And roofing is hard work. I grew up on the roofs, peeling, peeling off the old shingles, you know, I don't know if you've ever done that, but I grew up in Pennsylvania, and sometimes there'd be two and three layers because people just put it on top of another and another. And they'd say, we, want you to, we need a new roof. And when we go there, one of the things we'd look at is how many layers of shingles. And then you'd be surprised how many people just put it on top of, top of another layer. Sometimes there'd be at least three or four layers of shingles on there. And we'd have to be up there, and there's all these thousands of roofing nails. You get up on that roof and you have to take this shovel. And I'm telling you, it was hard work. Now you know why I'm so buff, by the way. Just saying. (laughs) (laughs) We'd sit there. We'd have to shovel and pry those things off. And I remember my dad, people would say, you know, I need a job or I went work. And, you know, my dad would hire people and they'd get up on that roof. And you'd get them up on that roof. And and even in the summer, it gets, by the way, it gets humid up in the Northeast. People may not know that, but it gets humid and there's hardly a breeze blowing. And it gets up into the 90s, but it feels like 100 and something plus. And then you get up on top of that roof and then it's 252 degrees up there. At least that's what it feels like. And then you start trying to pull all those nails out and those shingles and you're peeling it off and they're on steep roofs and they're up three stories high and I hate heights. And my dad had to be a roofer, you know, like God has a sense of humor, doesn't he? But I remember my, you say, why are you saying this? I remember when my dad would try to hire people and they'd say, well, I need a job. And my dad would say, well, what are you willing to do? Oh, I'm willing to do anything. I'll do anything. I just need money and I need work. Oh, yeah, they're willing to do anything. And then we find out they're willing to do anything but work up there on that roof. 
Because after about eight hours, nine hours, you know, we're trying to get the roof cleaned off. My dad would say at the end of the day, that guy's not worth his weight in salt. I didn't know what that meant until not long ago when I started studying the word of God and realized that that's what a person would get paid in. That's where a soldier would get paid in or a laborer would get paid in salt. Are you with me? Isn't it interesting? These statements and things, and we don't even realize where they come from. But here's the point. Jesus said this, that my followers, if you live in my ways, and you do what I've asked you to do, then you will be precious to the culture that you're living in, that you will be valuable to the culture that you are living in. We know that salt is used to flavor things. (laughs) And my family knows I love salt. I'll say to my wife, did you salt it? And she just knows. And my kids know. They just bring it and they bring a big old thing of salt with it, you know? I say, did you? She says, there's plenty of salt, and I'll get it, and I'll stir it, and I'll taste it, and I'll like, oh, bland. It needs some flavor. Give me some salt. How many of you are salt people? Come on now. All right. How many of you are not? You're not a big salt fan. You're boring. Oh my gosh. Boring. <laughs> now we know who the boring ones are. By the way, which ones again, real quick? Can I just see it? It's okay. No, be, be courageous. Be courageous in your boredom. All right. Please. I just know I need the salt when I get a meal from you or whatever you bring to potluck. We know which one. I know which one's now in potluck. Yep. <laughs> yep. You know. But I like some salt on my food. I want some flavor. So half the church say amen right there. The other half, you know, you're boring. So anyway. But salt brings flavor. It brings, to me, it brings life to the food that I'm going to eat. And what Jesus is saying is, is that you bring life. You bring vitality. You bring, you bring value to the society that you're living in. As followers of Jesus Christ, we're precious. As followers of Jesus Christ, we're valuable. And may I say this, we are called by God as followers of Jesus Christ to be salt in this city and in this community, that we bring life, that we bring vitality, that we bring flavor, if you will, to the culture that we're living in. And by the way, it brings a positive aspect, amen? We're to have savor. We're to be different. And that's really what happens is when you take food that has no flavor, no seasoning, it's just blah, it's just bland. But when you put some salt on it, it sets it apart. Amen. It's different. Do you understand what Jesus is saying is as followers of Christ, what makes us salt is because we are different. Does it make sense? We're different. We're set apart. Something else that salt does, and by the way, this is even more in our more what we call more modern times. Before we had refrigeration and refrigerators, and by the way, we still do it. We still use it all the time. How many of you love beef jerky? I love beef jerky. By the way, Christmas is coming, you know. Just, you know, just saying. You know, I gave up pastor appreciation, but I'll take jerky, you know. It just, <laughs> There's jerky. You can appreciate me, you know, with a little bit of jerky or beef sticks or something like that. 
Please no Slim Jims. That is not the real deal. Please. No Slim Jims, all right? But beef jerky is good. When you look at the ingredients, look at how much sodium. That's basically salt, right? It's a type of salt. Why is it in there? So that that bag can sit in that 7-Eleven or that Maverick for three years. And you can open that bag. And after three years, there's still something there. How can that be? Come on now, right? It's been what? Preserved. They used to do that with the meats and, I mean, hams and, and, and things. And before there was refrigeration, they would kill the meat and they would use a salt solution. They would use that and they'd put it on there and then it would preserve it. And they would have that meat all through the, you know, through the late fall and all through the winter and even into the spring. And it was preserved. Can I say this? God has us here to be salt, to preserve our culture and our society. Because I may I tell you something, this world is being influenced by the evil one, isn't it? And Satan, the evil one, is called the prince and power of the air. He's a controller in this world, if you will. And God has us here to hold back, if you will, that decaying process that the evil one wants to to bring into our culture. And so we are here to be the salt. We are here as God's people, if you will, to preserve our society until the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. We have a huge responsibility There's many other things that we could talk about salt, but I do believe one of the greatest aspects is that we do bring flavor and we do, we do have a responsibility to preserve the culture and the society that we are in because we're living in a world that continually wants to follow after the evil one and it is getting more and more and more evil. Would you agree with that? You don't have to watch the news very long. To see the things that are taking place. You know, God has called us to be salt, to bring to bring impact and to make an impact in our culture and in our society, in our communities. Look with me in John 17, just for a moment, just a couple passages very quickly. John 17. Notice what Jesus said in verses 14 through 20. Now he he tells us here, he says, I'm leaving you here for a purpose. Notice what he says to his disciples. He says, I have given them your word. And this is a prayer. Jesus is praying for you and I and for his disciples. He prays for his disciples, but later for us as well in this passage. John 17, this is Jesus' prayer shortly before he goes to the garden, before he goes to the cross. And he prays for us. How awesome is that? Jesus prayed for us. Wow. Amazing. He says, I have given them your word. The world has hated them, for they are not of the world anymore than I am of the world. He says, they're not of this world. He says, my prayer is that you not take them out of the world. Notice that. He says, I don't pray that as they follow me, you take them out of the world. He says, but that you protect them from who? There he is, the evil one. They are not of this world, even as I am not of it. And notice this word. He says, sanctify them. That's a You know, like a word that sometimes people, what does it mean? It literally means to just set them apart, to sanctify them. Set them apart by by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, 
Notice Jesus was sent into this world. He says, I have sent them into the world. You see that? So Jesus came. He was a salt, amen, and he was a light to the society and the culture. He says, but you sent me into the world, but now I, he's going to be leaving. He says, I'm sending you. He says, I'm sending them into this world. For them I sanctify myself. I set them apart. Notice that? That they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone, but notice this. I pray also, I love this. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. And so do you understand that we are called to be set apart? We are salt. And he says, I have sanctified you. I've set you apart. You're different. You're peculiar. You're different. And you are to be different. And may I say this? If you do what the Bible says, you are going to be a lot different than this world. Correct? You're going to act different. We're going to talk different. We're going to treat people differently. We're going to respond to people differently, hopefully, by God's grace. Amen. We're going to have love. We're going to be patient. We're going to be kind. We're going to love God with all of our heart, but we're also going to what? Love our neighbor as ourselves. And so that means we're going to love our neighbor, and we're going to care for our neighbor, and we're going to look after our neighbor. Amen? You see, to live like what Jesus said, be, he said, hey, turn the other cheek. That's different. Come on, right? And so he says, when you do the things I've asked you to do, you will be different. You will be set apart. And because of this difference that you bring to culture and to society, you will have impact. But he does say this. If you, as a follower of Christ, no longer live the way I want you to live, he says, you're going to be good for nothing. By the way, have you ever thought about that? You've heard that, right? You're good for nothing. I mean, it comes from the Bible. And what does he say? And this is what they would do in their culture. If the salt would lose its saltiness, its savor, and it no longer was effective, what would they do with the salt? They would use it to throw it out into the streets. And they would throw it out in the street, and then it would just be trampled on. Become a part of the road system as it calcifies. And so they would just throw it out into the streets just to be, it was useless and worthless. May we, as God's people, never be Christians who are not having impact. Does that make sense? In the Bible, I think there's two great examples. One of a great example of people who had impact. We're not going to go there, but I think many of you are familiar with this story. I want to just for two, three minutes remind you of a story in the book of Daniel of the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Kind of remember those names? In Daniel chapter 3, there was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were taken captive, and they were in Babylon, and they were under the oppression, if you will, of Nebuchadnezzar. And remember the story of Daniel. And Daniel was a man who had salt. Are you with me? Meaning, Daniel, he had impact, and Daniel had influence, and God used him in that wicked society and in that wicked culture. But in Daniel 3, you have Daniel's friend, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's possible that Daniel was not there. He may have been traveling. He was in a place of high leadership. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were given some type of a little bit of authority. But the long story short, it's this. 
is that Nebuchadnezzar, that wicked king, saw himself as if he was almost a god. And so he created this image. And with this image, it was 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. Many people believe, and it appears as though the image was made basically in his likeness. And so he was definitely a narcissist, okay? And it was all about him, and you will worship me. And so he put up this image, and it was said that when the music played, everyone had to bow down. And so sure enough, the day came that the music was going to play. Now, does anyone remember what the consequence was if they did not bow down? Does anyone remember? The fiery furnace. Remember we sing the song, There's Another in the Fire with us. We sang that last week. That song is from that story in the book of Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, now understand they were Hebrews and they were followers of God and they knew that there was one true God and they were not to bow down to any other God. And for them to bow down and worship this image, it would, it, they would be breaking God's commandments. And many of you know the story that the music was played and they did not bow. And so the king called for them to be brought to him and he, they were brought to him and he said, you have one more chance, one more opportunity. And the next time that it's time for the music to be played and for you to bow down and worship, if you don't, you will be thrown into the fiery furnace. And they said, we will not do it, O king. We will not, we will not sin against God. There's one true God and we will only bow down to him. He was angry and he heated up the furnace seven times hotter than it's ever been heated. And they they heated it up. And they said, we will not do it. And he said, well, will your God help you? And they said, basically, in essence, well, if, if God, we do believe that God is able to spare us. But if he doesn't, then so be it. But we will not. We will not bow. I love this story. And so they heated up. The music begins to play and they do not bow. They were set apart. May I also just say something to you? That there were many, don't not miss this, many other Israelites, Hebrew children that were taken into captivity. They were not the only three or four. Are you with me? There were many others. But what did they do? They bowed. They were not salt. And so what happened is they heated up the furnace. The soldiers that took them, the Babylonian soldiers that took them to cast them in, the Bible says it was so hot that it consumed, that it burned them. And the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, went down into the fire. And after some time, when the king looked in, and he looks in, and I love this, it says that he looked in and he saw four men loose, Walking in the midst of the fire. And he says this, that they had not one hair was singed and their garment had was not singed. And it says that they didn't even have the smell of smoke. But he says, lo, do we, he says, do we not throw three men into the fire? Why do I see four? And then King says, my goodness, I see the fourth one and he appears as to be the son of God. It was Jesus in the midst of the fire with them. Praise God. Amen. This isn't even part of the sermon, but can I tell you something? In your trials, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you can be encouraged that Jesus is right there with you. 
when they brought the men out and he saw the miraculous work of God, he said, it can be none other than the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he repented and he said, if anyone speaks evil of the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and you refuse to worship this God, then you will be cut to pieces. Literally, that's what the Bible says. God did a work there because there were some men who had the courage, amen, to be a salt. One last passage and we're finished in Genesis. Genesis chapter 18. It's kind of the opposite. Genesis chapter 18 and verse 17 through 33. It's a little bit long passage, but bear with me. And we'll finish here. It says this. How many of you have ever heard of a place called Sodom and Gomorrah? Ever hear of it? I've actually been right near it, kind of through it, by it. Believe it or not, they do believe they found the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis 17, we're going to see where Abraham prays for his family and prays for this City. He intervenes for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were called the five cities of the plain. Ever hear of the Dead Sea? If you know where the ever Dead Sea or look it up sometime, Dead Sea, that's where they're at. They're the five cities of the plain in and around Dead Sea. And so of these five cities, it's very possible that we only hear the two mentioned, Sodom and Gomorrah, but many people believe that four of the five cities were destroyed. The only one that wasn't was the city of Zor, Z-O-A-R, where Lot went. And by the way, it says that Lot went to a cave. And can I tell you something? I have been to these places. The Bible is so accurate because when people try to say the Bible isn't accurate, when you start digging and when you start looking and when you research and when you see where the Bible says things are and what happened in these areas, archaeology is proving the Bible to be true over and over and over again. They have actually do believe they found the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's on what's called a tell. When you look at that tell, you'll find, though, I can't remember the name of it, Tell Arama or Amra or something like that, but you can look it up. There's actually two layers of destruction. All right? There was one that was like previous, but then there was one where the city burned so hot that clay pottery turned to glass. And here's the point to that there was no way in that time in human history, that they had a way to heat pottery to a point that it would melt to glass. And so there was the city burned with a heat so, here's an Old Testament word, a vehement heat, meaning a heat that was so hot that it was able to turn pottery to glass. They found it. So where did this fire come from? It came from somewhere outside of humankind. Now, really, what we do know and what we do believe, and there's a theory, but it's pretty, probably pretty accurate, because in and around the Dead Sea walls, there's foreign sulfuric type of, like, basically remnants that are not from earth. Where did they come from? Well, they came from the heavens. And it has happened before, by the way, in history. 
It happened out over Siberia. I think it was in like the 1900s over Siberia. And then also, I think even earlier in the 1700s or 1800s where cities were destroyed by a meteor that flew through the sky and then exploded. And the one over Siberia destroyed like, it was like 700 plus square miles. Completely just just incinerated it. Because a meteor exploded in the air near the surface of the earth. And in that location... In out, but it was out in Siberia, so obviously no one was killed. But there has been record of places where cities or places where hundreds of people have been killed because a meteor, as it's coming to earth, explodes over top of that area. By the way, God is in control. And if God wanted to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by sending a meteor and, and burning those cities, very capable. I mean, right now, I was watching on MSN that right now, NASA, and they're actually trying to find a way to, um, I'm just going to use my ignorant terms, basically like meteor zappers. It's like a video game, you know. <laughs> no, but there is a concern that we'll be hit with, a, with large meteors. Is, that, is this, am I the only one that knows this or do other people, right? Okay. <laughs> okay, just making sure. Because I don't even think, like, this guy's like sci-fi. He's, he watched too many sci-fi movies late before church on Sunday. <laughs> this is, so I really want you to get a grasp for this. And so in Genesis, let's read this real quick. And the Lord said, this is God, the Lord, with his two angels. And the two angels left to go to the city of Sodom and Gomorrah to deliver Lot and his family. But this is what he says. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. Abraham became the nation of Israel. All the nations of the earth are blessed because Jesus Christ came through the nation of Israel. Amen? He kept his word. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. By doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned, these are the two angels, away and went towards Sodom. But Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Now understand, Abraham knew he had family. He had his nephew Lot and Lot's children and, and his wife there. He says, then Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the, the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing. To kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will you not judge all the earth and do right? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And Abraham spoke up again. Abraham is a negotiator, let me tell you. <laughs> wow. Wow. He is a negotiator. 
Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if there are only 40 that are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if there are only 30 that can be found there? And he answered, I will not destroy it if I find 30. It doesn't stop there, guys. It keeps going. And Abraham said, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if there were 20 can be found there? Notice he started dropping by five, then it went to 10. He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And then he said, may the Lord be not angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? And he answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. Now, we don't have time to go to the next chapter, but many of you know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and a man by the name of Lot. You see, Abraham prayed and he said, God, if you would not destroy it, you start with 50, then 40, you know, 45, then down to 20, then 10. And he said, if there were 10, and by the way, very easy, there could have been and should have been 10. You had Lot and his wife. It says that he had two daughters and he talks about sons-in-laws. It had son-in-laws. And so he could have had easily just in his immediate family, eight to 10 people in his immediate family. And now, by the way, let me just throw this out here. Why do you think Abraham, if he had the boldness to start at 50, work his way down to 10, if there was only four in Lot's family, why would, why, or five, why would Abraham not have stopped at five? I'll tell you why. Because Abraham knew there was at least 10 people in the immediate family of Lot. Does that make sense? Make pretty good sense? He had son-in-laws. He had two daughters. He was married to his wife. And by the way, the Bible says she turned back and she turned what? To a pillar of salt. It's the Dead Sea. There is actually a, a salt pillar there. By the way, it's called the, the mountains of like Gomorrah, the Gomorrah Mountains. They are completely mountains of like salt deposits. There is a pillar there, and there's actually a place you can go. You can look it up, and they, they call it the, the place, basically Lot's wife. Not saying that it's actually her, but there's a large pillar of salt, and people say there, see there. And then not far from there, uh, there's a cave where they believe that her, right below it is a cave where they believe that they buried her remains there. And then if, here's archaeology. Just I, I get, I'm sorry I get so caught up in this stuff because I love this stuff. But it says that Lot, as he flees the city, his wife turns back and looks back, right? And she, we said she turns pillar of salt. But then he goes to the place uh, in and around Zor, the city of Zor, and he sees and watches the destruction. He sees the, 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 the fire from heaven coming down. And it says that he stays there in a the cave and some, I mean, crazy things happen. And there is an actual cave there. It's called Lot's Cave. There is a cave. You talk about the Bible being accurate. 
written, and by the way, right in the same region is a place called Masada. And not far from Masada is a place called uh, uh, Qumran. And in Qumran is where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And all of them are accurate, very accurate, like the book of Isaiah. And what we have today, I'm telling you, God's word is true. It is true. Even all the things that were written literally hundreds and thousands of years ago, archaeology continues to prove them to be true. But listen, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah did exist. And the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. And I want you to tell you, I want you to hear something that you've probably never heard another preacher say. People say, why did God destroy the city of Sodom and Gomorrah? And this one, everyone will say, because of the sin of homosexuality. No! No! That is not why God destroyed the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. He destroyed the city of Sodom and Gomorrah because Lot and his family were no longer the salt of the earth. God said, I would spare it if there were ten righteous people living justly and righteously and walking in my way. And when they refused to do that, then there was no hope for that city. Oh, may God move into my heart and your heart to hear the words of Jesus Christ when he said, you are the salt of the earth. And if God does bring judgment to America, it is not because of the lost. It is because Christians are no longer living like we have been called to live. Somebody say amen. It is not It is not the sin of the world. It was the neglect of God's people to live a righteous and holy life. So much so that when they came, when the angels came, Lot offered his daughters and said, you can have my daughters and do with them whatever you want. Lot had become like the world that he lived in. I do not even have time to go there. But in 2 Peter 2, read it for yourself. In 2 Peter 2, It says this, that Peter, I mean, Peter says that Lot was a just man at one time. He was a just man. But it says this, that he vexed his righteous soul. He tormented his righteous soul day after day by the evil deeds that he was surrounded by. What does it mean? It means simply this, is that Lot no longer was influencing his culture. His culture began to influence him. You see, we are called to be salt. Amen? We should be the ones impacting and influencing our society and our culture. We should be that salt. Later we'll talk next week. We should be the light. We should be what brings flavor and life. We should be the ones that preserve our society and our culture. Amen? Amen. We have a responsibility We have a responsibility to be involved, to be involved in our community. I'll be honest, why do I coach? Why do I volunteer and get involved in my my son? And why, why should we do these things? Because we're called to be salt. We're called to have impact. Amen? We're called to be the salt of the earth. May we be that salt. Amen? Let's stand together. I think I lost my voice there.